Yep. Uh, good morning. My name is Derek. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, if you weren't here last week, it is me. I got my hair cut. Um, if you're new, it was gross and long uh, before that. But if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. If you haven't been with us, we've been uh, doing a series that um, I guess realistically has been about five Sundays. And it has uh, been going through this story that Jesus told that we call the prodigal son story. It's not the title he gave it, but it's a good title. Um, it's actually the story of a father who had two sons. That's how Jesus began the story. And so what we've done over the last few weeks is um, just taking, just, we've been taking a look at each character in the story. And we've been taking a look at what Jesus was saying about each of those characters. And each character, the three main characters, the two brothers and the father, they represent some things. And when Jesus told stories, uh, parables by design, uh, are the kinds of stories that he told, I'm falling, uh, which is what we just sang, so that was cool. Uh, parables by design were meant to be told, and for the listening audience, that's you and me, although we're thousands of years away from the story. They're meant for the audience to find themselves in the story. And they're meant for the listener to sort of decide what role they're playing in the story. Now, Jesus told three stories back to back. He told the story of a lost sheep, the story of a lost coin, and the story of this, uh, the lost son. Now, in Jewish storytelling, it was very common to tell three stories back to back like this with the third character in the third story being the main point. And so Jesus tells three consecutive stories. They're very similar in nature, and there's a main point found in the third story. Now, if you were here last week, we talked greatly about the older brother in the story, which seems to be the point. And the reason for that is this. Go back to verses 1 and 2 in the chapter. This is why Jesus told the story. Make sure we're just tracking with this. I know I say this every week, uh, but it's, it's, it's the reason behind Jesus even told these stories in the first place. But basically, Luke, the writer, uh, tells us and describes for us what kinds of people were normally around Jesus when he taught. And the two categories he gives us are sinners and tax collectors. And so these are the people essentially that were uh, the worst of the worst. And so Jesus attracted people, uh, when he taught, he attracted people who were, were not living the best moral life. Uh, their behavior was not that great. It was not at a high standard. And the Bible also says that Jesus was a friend of sinners, which is great to know, by the way. If you're looking for a God, that's the one you want to go for, that he's a friend of people who don't have it all together. And so Luke says part of the audience, whether it was half or a third or more, doesn't, doesn't say, but part of the audience were these people whose lives weren't the best, all right? The other part of the audience, the other section, Luke tells us, were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These were the religious elite. Now, it's important to remember that Jesus also loved these people. I know that in church circles we go, Jesus hated these people. It's not true. He loved these people. He was friends with those people too. He was friends with the people who were the best of the best. And so Jesus both had an affection and a love for both the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What we find in Scripture is Jesus pushing against the religious people uh, because they had gotten some things mixed up. Namely, they were replacing the relationship with God with religion. And so we'll talk a little bit about that today. And so the reason Jesus tells the story is because those people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they say, this man, 
Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so here's the indictment on Jesus that he's hanging around with the wrong people. And so Jesus begins to sort of counter that thinking by telling these stories. So uh, a couple things before we actually read the story. We're going to read it one more time. Jesus is primarily aiming this story at the religious elite, but he's telling the story so that both types of people in his audience are listening in as well. And he creates this story with God as the father in the story, as the central character who goes back and forth between his two sons who are very different in how they relate to his father. And it's a story about how two brothers love their father. Now, what we're going to do today is, because we've already done all the characters, we've already talked about what each one represents and so on. What we're going to do today, and Jesus would do this from time to time with his disciples, we're going to step back from the story or get above it and just take it apart and say, this is what Jesus was doing when he told this story. Now, I'm not Jesus. I'm not saying that I'm going to do what Jesus did, but I'm going to do my best to tell you what Jesus was getting at when he told this story. And so for the sake of those who haven't been here, if you're new, you haven't been around for the series Uh, and possibly to the chagrin of those who have been here over the last few weeks. We're going to read the story one more time. So if you will, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him uh, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill the stomach, his stomach, with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So Jesus frames up this little kid's situation as terrible. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. It's a great formula for repentance, because people are involved with our sin as well. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. We talked about that last week. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, and you never gave me even a young goat I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, now he's disassociating himself from the family, this son of yours 
has squandered, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. This story is about, and if you have a journal today, I want you to write some things down. This story is about loving God in the right way, in the purest way, which, as we'll see in a moment and at the end, is loving Him from the inside out. And these two brothers in the story, and again, Jesus has great purposes for telling this story. The two brothers in the story, they represent two ways that we figure that out. They represent two ways that people, you and me, figure out what it feels like and means to actually love God in the purest sense. And if I just might add that this story is how it shows us how painstakingly conscious loving God really is. That a genuine relationship with God is always in check. It doesn't become a list of things that I do, but it becomes a matter of something else. And so what I want to do, again, we're just going to pull the story apart. I want to talk about the two brothers and the two paths, because if there's anything that brought these two brothers together, if there's anything that these two brothers had in common, if there's anything that put these two brothers on the same page, it was this issue. It was the issue of moral performance. And that's important to realize. Because again, you've got to keep going back to verses 1 and 2. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. A sinner was someone who was visually and obviously living the wrong kind of life. And so what brought the two brothers together, or at least puts them on the same page in the story, is the issue of moral performance. And let me just say it this way. For the younger brother, moral performance drove him away. And we'll talk about that in a moment. For the older brother, moral performance stood in the way. It was in between him and the father. And you can figure this out by two statements that each makes, or they each make one statement, and we're just going to sit on those today. Verse 12, and start with the younger brother. And again, the job of a parable is for you, the listener, and me, the listener, to find ourselves in the story. So that's your job today. The younger son, verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. That's where we want to sit on him, because it's the really one of two times that he speaks to the father. The next time that he speaks to the father, he'll be saying, I'm sorry, which is a great ending to the story. But what happens in between him asking for a share of the estate, which is saying, you're as good as dead to me, by the way, and him coming home and saying, I'm sorry, a lot happens in this kid's life. And however you break this one up, it comes down to this kid wanting out of the relationship with his father. He wants out from out from, uh, away from all the boundaries and the constraints that are at home. We know this because of what he does next, right? If you just read the following verses, he goes out and he just blows his life away. He lives crazy. The phrase Jesus uses is almost humorous. He lives, in, he, he lives wild living, which the word is asotos. It means loose, like he's just, he's off the chain. He's off the leash, Right? This is the story of the kid who gets dropped off. He's been a sheltered kid his whole life, and he gets dropped off at, at UGA, and the parents say goodbye, and they take a picture in the dorm room, and they leave, and, and Athens has never been the same. <laughs> we all went to college with those people, right? I mean, I, I went to a seminary, and like these kids would come in who'd never been, I don't know, they'd never been anywhere, and it was like a spiral of just behavior because they were free, Right? And so for the younger brother, 
It's about control. It's about controlling. He has this passion to control his own steps, his own way of life, right? And if the father in the story is God, and he is, Jesus is giving us a picture with this kid's life of anyone who says, you know what? God will have no control over my life anymore. He will have no authority. He will hold no authority or power over me. And so however you break it down, it all filters out to this son wanting out of the relationship with his father. And ultimately, this is about people just running from God. And outside of simply just not believing in God, which is clearly an issue for so many people, there are two major reasons that people just run away. There's two main reasons that people just want out as this kid wanted out. Number one, and you can write this down if you would like, because again, it may be your story, but for so many people, younger brothers, so to speak, loving God feels like an impossibility because of so many moral debits in their own life, so many behavioral mishaps. Essentially, the bar is too high. So for so many younger brothers, they look around, they read the Word of God, they hear sermons, they, they're around people that love God, and they have determined that the bar is way too high. And the truth is, it is too high. And it's understandable that people might feel this way because God is holy, and there are expectations of how He wants us to live our life. There's no getting around that. And to add to that, what makes it difficult for younger brother types is that if I blow it enough in my decisions, in my relationships, in my thought life, then at some point God is going to run out, with, run out of patience with me. That's sort of the idea that younger brothers struggle with. And my guess is you've probably been there, or maybe you're there right now. You're growing tired of saying the same prayers over and over again, asking for forgiveness for the same stuff. And younger brothers oftentimes will just say, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, it's just no use. It's no use. I can't live up to the expectation, and so I'll just go do my own thing. Which, as in the story, they find out doesn't, it doesn't satisfy either. Now, old, the older brother in the story was flawless in his behavior. And that's a tough shadow to live in, isn't it? When someone close to you or someone near you, they seem to have it all together, and you don't. And so sometimes younger brother types... They just leave. They leave a relationship with God because what's the, what's the point? I could never do that. Now, the city, sociologically and just by nature, is full of younger brothers, right? It is. It's full of people who are done trying to live in the shadow of behaviorally flawless parents, brothers, sisters, pastors, community leaders, and so on. I mean, just doing on the street interview and just talk to people and bring up the issue of faith, and they'll say, you know what? It just wasn't. It just wasn't for me. I love my parents. I respect them, but it just wasn't for me. So I'm out here doing my thing. Another reason that people run like the younger brother is that it's not so much that they perhaps feel like loving God truly is an impossibility, but they've seen too many failures in the lives of people who claim to know God. This is one of those things where the character of God for younger brothers is determined by the behavior of his people. And so we associate what God is like or not like based on how his people are behaving. It's the classic approach. It's discovering and uncovering 
the lives of outwardly pious people, and we find out what their secret life is really like, right? It's like all the sting operations where they find the, you know, the, the, the internet porn ring with child pornography, and it turns out to be a clergyman or an elder or just a believer, and there's a Bible on the table by the computer, and of course, maybe it's just the media that loves to find those stories, but it never seems to fail that that's always the case, that people who outwardly look great are moral train wrecks underneath. There's a man behind the curtains doing something else. And we've all, I mean, that's, by the way, that's all of us. And so younger brothers are drawn to sort of run from this because of the failures of other people, which, by the way, if you think hard about it, hard enough about it, that's a form of self-righteousness as well. That's assuming that you now have it all together because you're seeing the imperfections in others. But it doesn't change the fact that people struggle with the failures of people who claim to love God. Maybe this kid knew the heart of his brother. I mean, his brother was flawless in his behavior, but maybe he knew that he wasn't that great of a guy. Maybe he was a jerk and he knew it. And so many people, and on a more subtle level, they love God, they truly do, but they don't love people. And so younger brothers have a hard time with that. They're the ones who are pointing fingers and saying it's just... It doesn't match up. It's not consistent. There's no integrity. And so sometimes younger brothers struggle to love God because their eyes are on people who are clearly imperfect and they're not on God. But either way, moral performance drove this kid away. Either the bar was too high, and I want to repeat, by the way, it is too high. It's why Christ died on the cross. But either the bar was too high in his mind and he lost hope, or he was tired of the failures of others, or both, so he left to do it on his own. So salvation, so to speak, for the younger brother in his own mind was going to be found through self-discovery. So many of us choose the path of just self-discovery. I'll just leave and get out from underneath whatever it is that I've been brought up to believe, and I'll go find it for myself. How do you know you're a younger brother? You're on the run. That's how you know. You've lost hope. You're fed up. You don't think that whatever happened on the cross is sufficient for you. And you struggle with the lives of other people that are inconsistent. And in a way, you've become a judgmental person as well. And so you just leave. And you try to go solo, and you're on the run. Right? Look at verse 29. This is the elder brother. But he answered his father, Look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet, you never what? Gave me. We'll just leave it at that. You never gave me anything. Two things angered the older brother. One was that he felt like his younger brother was being rewarded for his immoral behavior, which I guess in a sense... It appears that way. He was being more rewarded for his repentance. But to this older brother, he's upset because it looks like that the younger brother is being uh, rewarded because of his bad behavior. But more importantly than that, the elder brother is upset because his own flawless behavior wasn't paying off. That's what he says. I've never disobeyed you and you never gave me. I've been, I've been walking a straight line for you my whole life, and it's never paid off. 
And so for the younger brother, it was about getting away from the father's control. But for this kid, and catch what Jesus is saying, it was about controlling the father through his behavior. If I live a morally flawless life, then somehow we believe that I can work God to my advantage. And this theology is out there. If I just do a certain amount of things, if I say the right prayers in the right way, if I do enough things, if I'm in enough things that are spiritual, if I'm living the right kind of life, then God will give me stuff that he'll bless me, that I'll get the right parking space, right? And Jesus is pointing out that walking the straight line versus struggling to hold it together has absolutely no effect on whether or not he loves us. That has no effect. All that's been done. And more specifically, that moral performance, and again, hear me on this, that's desired of, that's desired of our lives from God. He desires that we live the right kind of life. But moral performance is not a cover charge to get services. Or as we say in the church world, blessings. It has no bearing on it. It has no bearing whether or not God loves you or not. And make no mistake again that living the right kind of life is certainly what God wants from us, but we must live the kind of life, that kind of life, as essentially a side effect of our love for him, not the other way around. And in this story, Jesus is giving us a picture of how so many people get the two confused. If you love God from the outside in, behavior first, if you do that long enough, it will become a religion for you and no longer a relationship. And you will struggle with failure. And you will struggle with dropping the ball. Now, let me tell you a funny story because it's been kind of heavy in here. Uh, my son is an elder brother by nature. He loves it when other people get in trouble. And at every student, teacher, parent, whatever conference this past year for first grade, uh, he's, he would be in some of those, and she would say, um, your son is so, he's so well behaved. He never gets in trouble. And he would say, but Jonathan does. And then he would get up and walk over to the wall where Jonathan's stick is, and he would demonstrate how Jonathan's stick gets pulled out every time. And it's like, oh my gosh. So I look at Mickey, and I'm going, it's your boy, it's your boy. Uh, so that's, that's how he is, all right? He prefers never to get in trouble, and so he behaves out of fear that he won't. Now, he misbehaves too, but by and large, he, in a setting like that, he, he walks the line right down the middle. Uh, he's also been learning about things, and all this is just backstory for you, but he's been learning about things in the Bible, uh, specifically about the command to not worship other gods. And that's a big command. I mean, it's like, like the first command of the ten. You should have no other gods before me. And there's great stories in the Old Testament about, like, namely, like Daniel, how Daniel wouldn't bow down to the king uh, because that was paying tribute, that was worshiping physically uh, an earthly person. So Daniel wouldn't bow down to the king, and what happens to Daniel? They throw him in the lion's den, right? This freaks my son out. And, um, and so, which is good, right? So he's in soccer camp this summer. Now, my son is somehow imagining his entire life that these types of things will happen to him, which I'm thinking, this doesn't happen in our culture. You know, you're not forced to bow down to any uh, leader that we have unless it's soccer camp. So he's in soccer camp. And um, there's 60 kids, and the, the, the coach for, the, you know, for his group says, all right, we're going to do some role play. I'm going to be the king, and you are my servants. 
And he says, I need everybody to bow down to me. So the next scene is 59 kids are on the floor and Alden is just standing there. Now, I told this story to one person. They were like, dude, ride on for your son. Like, just not giving a rip about what people think. And I was like, I guess that's true. But he's standing there thinking, this is not, this is not good. This is not good. I've read about this. I'm, I'm going to the lion's den. This is, not, this is not a good day, you know. So, you can't make this stuff up. It's totally true. And yeah, we applaud him for that, you know. Of course, we had to explain that it's just a game. He's not really your king. And, uh, but the more importantly, what we have to remind our son of is that, yes, we want him to do the right thing, but for the right reasons. We have to remind him that that was great in any situation where he makes the right decision. But please don't make that decision out of fear that if you make the wrong decision, God will hate you. It's not true. It's not true. There has been, uh, I forgot to share this with last service, but we've had kind of a rough month in our family. Um, My wife had a miscarriage three weeks ago. Uh, Our secretary resigned here, and my wife and son are in Louisville waiting for her grandmother to die. And so she's been, we're we're rooting for July. Just come on July, you know. Um, But when we had the miscarriage, my son knew about it. And his first question after he was done being upset, his first question was, and I quote, did God kill the baby because we didn't pray hard enough? And it was this moment where we had to say, no, no. He was asking the question, is God paying me back or us back for bad behavior? No. And now he's in Louisville, with his great-grandmother, hopefully, and I'm not there, I will be there at some point, but hopefully he's learning that this is not because of evil or bad things. And we have to teach, we have been teaching him more than ever in the last few months that this is not an issue of keeping the rules to gain God's love. You love God because you love God not because it keeps pain away from you. See, older brothers have a hard time with, with suffering because they attribute it to their, their own personal sins. Now, sin may bring on suffering, just the results of it, but they struggle with failure and suffering. There was a group of Pharisees in the days of Jesus. This is quite comical, but they were known as the bleeding Pharisees. And the reason they were known as the bleeding Pharisees was because they took the command to not lust seriously, which you should, but so seriously that they would walk through crowded streets with wooden boxes over their heads so they wouldn't see women. And they would just run into walls, right? And consequently just damaging their face, all for the sake of not failing, doing everything they could to not drop the ball. Look at, if you will, I don't have it on the screen for you, but Ephesians chapter 2. It's in the latter part of the Bible, and it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus. And he, early in the letter, he wants to make sure that everyone knows that it's not because of what you do that gains anything with God, but it's because of what God does for you. 
And because of what God does for you, that in turn should lead you to live the right kind of life. Watch what he says, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I mean, just a beautiful way of saying you're no longer a part of the rhythm of culture. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying in, uh, the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, heavy language, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions or sins, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. In other words, your life is going to be an example of the grace of God expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And here's the one you hang on right here. For it is, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by what? Works. Paul's just saying in a very long way, which is typical Paul, this is not about anything that you have done or not done. I like how he turns it. For we are God's workmanship, which is the word poimea. It means poem. You're his poetry created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He spends nine verses saying it's not about works. It's not about works, but it's about working because of what God has done for you. And so because of what God has done, because of his love and his grace and his saving power and so on, that's why we do good things. That's why we live the right kind of life. And so for the elder brothers in the world, it's a constant struggle of moral performance. And moral performance for elder brother types, and that may be you in here today, is that it stands in between you and God. And you and God, the relationship ceases to be a relationship over time, and it becomes more of a religion. So Jesus is warning those as well. Let me just give you some closing thoughts, and I mean this. When Jesus told the story, it's like he's saying to all the younger brothers in his audience and to us, hey, look, I understand your position because there's a lot of elder brothers out there who make life hard for you. If you can, turn back to Matthew 23. There's a couple times in Scripture where Jesus is um, quite angry, and this is one of them. And he's firing off some things at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says in verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in, man, in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter, you will let those enter who are trying to. So he's saying, you're not even in the right place, and you won't let others in. And then in verse Uh, 15, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Now, that's some heavy stuff, and it's all about this anvil that they put on the backs of people and say, get over the bar, get over the bar. If you want God to love you, get over the bar, and so Jesus is saying to all the younger brothers, 
in the audience, look, I understand your position and how some people in your life have made it hard for you. But I hope that somewhere out there on your journey of living under your own control, which is what the younger son does, that at some point on that journey, you'll have this, as he says in verse 17, this come to your senses moment where you realize that my love for you was never based on what you did or didn't do. It's a whole different issue. And maybe you'll come home, right? Maybe that moment will be one of those moments where it's like, I don't see anyone else but the Father. I'm not watching the lives of my elder brothers. I'm not concerned about what they have done or not done. But I have this come to my senses moment that God loves me regardless. And it's funny because it's still all about performance for these two. For this kid, it drove him away. But for the older brother, it was in the way. And so to the older brothers in the audience, Jesus was saying, look, your decision and your discipline to live a clean life is amazing. It is, especially in our world. And in the world in which Jesus lived, it was crazy too. And he's saying the fact that you've been able to stay in that lane for so long is praiseworthy. I mean, it's the father saying to the son, look, gosh, yes, you have it. You have lived the right kind of life for so long. You've never disobeyed me. And Jesus is just saying, it's almost like it's a praise for them. It's like, yeah, right on for that. That is amazing that you've been able to do that for so long. There was a girl in our college uh, when she got married. It's a true story. Not that I'm telling lies up here, but just listen to me. The first time she kissed a boy was at her wedding which I thought was too much new stuff on your wedding day, all right? I'm just saying, I mean, that's, you know? It's a lot to take in, you know, in one day. And after all the jokes, and after all, like, the laughing and the pointing and the going, man, I can't believe it, at the end of it all, we're all sort of like, that's amazing. You got to give it to her. I mean, you've got to give it to her that that's the path she chose, and she stayed in that lane the whole time. And she wasn't crazy or some sort of like, yeah, she's really strange. I mean, she's a normal person, but just made a decision that she was going to walk that line till that moment. That's praiseworthy. And so Jesus is saying to these people, look, it's not that what you have done and how you've lived your life is, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the desire that God has for all of us, that we live life in the right lane. But he's saying, please be careful not to trick your heart and your mind into believing that your works alone are the main indicator of our relationship. They're not. Because we can all play the games, right? We can all pretend that we love God. And he's saying to them, it goes much deeper than that. Psalm 51 If there was ever the consummate younger brother, it's King David. I mean, this dude was in and out and in and out of his relationship with God. I mean, you read the life of David in the Bible and you think, seriously, God used this guy? Praising God one day and murdering people the next? I mean, this is is the younger brother in real life. And look at verse 1, 51. He says, have mercy on me, 
O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I mean, this is a kid who struggles with his failures. Against you, you only have I sinned. He's at least decided that, like the son goes home, Father, I've sinned against you. And I've done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely your desire, you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me, he says, right? And I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And here's the one you hang on right here. Create in me a pure, what? Heart. Not behavior. Not discipline to do all the right things at the right time. But let's start where it matters. He says, create in me a pure heart. Isn't that what we do? God, give me the strength not to go back to that website again. It's the wrong prayer. Created me a pure heart. God, give me the strength not to do that anymore. Okay, good prayer, wrong prayer. Created me a pure heart. And then watch what he says, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Within me, not outside of me, but within me. And do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of of your salvation, and all of us can echo if we have a connection with Jesus that there are times where it's not joyful. There's a time where it feels like a burden. And here's David thousands of years ago saying the same prayer that we have said so many times in different ways, God, can you just bring the fun back to this relationship and restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me, not anything other than everything beginning inside Deuteronomy 6, fifth book of the Bible, will end here. And if you know me, you're saying, oh, brother, here we go. But this is the chief command for people. Verse 4, Moses says to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus will add the word mind when he says you love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, your mind and your strength, and the flow of the chief and greatest commandment is from the inside out, every time. It's never from the outside in. See, we get it reversed. i got to fix my behavior before God will love me. But the prayer is, God, begin in my heart. Begin inside. That the flow of this life is always from the inside out. From the outside in is pretending. From the inside out is genuine. And when Jesus tells this story, by the way, no one is off the hook. I know we've talked a great deal about grace and love and forgiveness and so on, but everybody that he mentions in the story and everybody in his audience, you and me as well, no one's off the hook. No one gets out clean. We all have to find ourselves in the story. And many of us will go back and forth between the older and the younger brother. That's just the life we live. And so Jesus is calling us back to what is most important, and that is that you love God from the inside out. And so that's where we'll leave it.
And this is what I'll ask of you uh, as, I, as I pray and we move into communion. And uh, the screen will direct you on how we do communion, but if you are new, um, we take part in this every week, and it's at four tables, two in the front, two in the back, and you just make your way uh, during the music um, to take the bread and the juice, which symbolizes the life and the death of Jesus and the hope of, of His return. And as well, the offering baskets are on the tables as well. But let me say this before I pray and get into that. Some of you, uh, some of you are younger brother types. I mean, you're here, but you're on the run. And some of us are elder brothers. I'm wired to be an elder brother. It's probably where my son gets it. And we have to remember the very words of Jesus in this story, and that is, man, that's great you're living that kind of life, but keep it in check. Be conscious. Be present. Know what your heart is up to. But for all of us, the story just resounds this gospel truth that everyone is welcome at the foot of the cross and that at any moment we can sort of come clear in our minds and say, where I need to be is home, so to speak, where I need to be is back with my Father. And this is a place, by the way, where we hope that you, if you're a younger brother type, that you hear that message loud and clear. And we want to know that. We want to know if that's you. We want to know if that's your journey. And so you can communicate that to us in the baskets on the back of your card. You can just tell us what's up. We would love to pray for you and speak with you and, and even walk you through that or lead you home in some way. That's the job of the older brother as well. Let me pray, and, uh, and then we'll be finished for today. Father, uh, thank you for the story that we've been sitting in for a few weeks, and um, it's a very familiar uh, s- uh, story, and it makes it hard to be fresh. But my prayer is that um, we've all learned something about ourselves, about you, about what it looks like to pursue a relationship with you in different ways. And God, it's so true that the world is just really divided, just like the brothers in the story, that there are some of us that just think we'll do it on our own, and there are some of us who do everything right, but it's to get what we want. And you're calling us back to a genuine love for you, and it's just that simple. And yet, it's that complicated. And so God, give us, as David prayed, a pure heart. And as your own son said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they're the people that will see you. And so we just, we pray for that. We pray for a clean and pure heart, that we just love you from the inside out, and that our strength, our physical life, our behavior shows itself because of what's going on inside. And all these things we pray in your Son's name. And everyone said, Amen.